We'll turn back to 1 Samuel chapter 3, where Ron read to us a minute ago. This is the 10th message in our series on the life of Samuel. And in this passage, from 15 to the end of the chapter, we've kind of skipped some intermediate verses there. But uh, in this, uh, we see that Samuel becomes a leader, a national leader. This is the beginning, really, of his ministry. We're told uh, at the end of the passage in verse 20 that he's a leader from Dan to Beersheba, from the northernmost part of Israel to the very southernmost part. Uh, they all knew from these events that he had become a prophet of the Lord. As one writer said, uh, the call of Samuel had ended his childhood, uh, even though, as uh, Josephus had uh, proposed, that he was perhaps 12 years old. Uh, so we have seen this boy, uh, even from before he was born, as, as his mother promised him to the Lord, and then brought to the temple at, at, at three years old, and now perhaps at 12 years old, and at 12 years old, he has to become a man. He has to take the reins himself. He has to give God's message even to the high priest, who's at this time 90 years old. Uh, reminds you very much of Jesus at 12 years old in the temple, doesn't it? When uh, his parents came to find him and uh, wanted to take him home, and, which Jesus uh, did, but said, I must be about my father's business. And in a real way, uh, Samuel now at this age of his life has to be about the father's business. It's a precious passage here uh, all the way through chapter 3. Here at the end as we see this quiet scene uh, in this early, these early morning hours as these things change for Samuel. And it's good for us because it reminds us that we are always raising up a new generation. Uh, no matter where we are in our lifespan, uh, we, we may be the new generation at one time, but we'll be the older generation at another time. Uh, we'll be raising that generation uh, in the years in between. So we're always involved in this process. Th these kinds of passages remind us of this. Whether we like it or not, we are involved in the process of raising up the next generation, passing the torch, uh, passing the, the baton, so to speak, keeping the faith, uh, asking the next generation to do the same, and we're reminded of that. Let me give you uh, a ho-hum speech here, if I can, and that is we're standing in the 21st century, 3,000 years after this story took place, more than 3,000 years, and things have changed, haven't they? And yet things have not changed. Uh, some things are, will always be this way, and other things uh, change as the ages progress and, and the time of God's earth uh, comes toward an end. We, we are not the same as past generations. If, I, if I'm speaking to the 21st century church, uh, we have to understand some things about our day and age. Do we not live in the end times? If we live in the end times, is there not a great apostasy taking place in the world that has not taken place before? If we are that last generation or even close to that last generation, won't we see this happening? And 
If that's so, then we are on a slippery slope and not just at the top of the slide sitting there wondering whether we're going to push ourselves down. We're on the way down and going very quickly. And I think that uh, when we see the world around us and even the country in which we live, we see uh, those things changing very quickly. And our young people, as we try to encourage them and pass the baton to them, uh, are exposed to more worldliness than any generation has ever been exposed to. And therefore, it affects them in great ways. This younger generation that we're trying to hold on to and bring along, they are being taught in our schools and in our entertainment industry, the sports industry, the fashion industry, all of this. They are being taught uh, apostasy. They're being taught worldliness, that this is normal, that this is what they should be, and that they're out of step with the world if they're not that way. As Isaiah put it, uh, evil is good and good is evil in this generation in which we live. And America has changed. There's no doubt about that. Uh, I even think sometimes we, we must have two countries within our country. <laughs> Uh, and I don't know that the, the, ever the twain shall meet. And I think that maybe 50% or perhaps more really want to rid this country of Christianity and would do everything they can to rid uh, any vestige of uh, Christianity and its history from this country. Uh, if you think we have seen the iconoclasts wanting to do away with the monuments of the Confederacy, you know, going around the country, pulling the statues down and everything, I predict that uh, if not in our lifetime, in the lifetime of our kids and grandkids, we will see the iconoclasts, that is, those who tear down the icons, uh, they will be pulling down those statues in Statuary Hall and in other places of our country that remind us anything of our Christian history. I think it's coming that fast. We already see it in the monuments of the Ten Commandments, do we not? We can't have these in public places. We can't have these in our courthouses. The Ten Commandments of God. And even this week, as our president was traveling in Western countries, Western European countries, you see the change uh, that has happened over the last few hundred years, uh, even in the West that was at one time a Christian uh, part of the world. And churches, we're in the success business. We're, we run businesses. We're building cathedrals and monuments to ourselves. And, and we're building uh, things that will give us a name into the future. And the biggest uh, uh, reason why we is, exist is to be successful, to be big, to have money, to have people, to have a voice, to have uh, a million likes behind your name online or whatever it is. Th this is what we're about in the, in the uh, churches. And so our children that are coming along in this generation are cultural clones. They are taught to mimic the world and bring that culture not only into their homes, but also into our churches. So what about the next generation? What are we going to do with our kids and grandkids? They have more difficult challenges than any other generation. I remember in the 60s, as I was a teenager, 
my pastor and others saying, uh, you uh, are facing greater challenges in your lifetime than any generation before you. And I think they were right, but I think I can stand here today and say, but my kids and grandkids will face greater challenges than I ever faced. It is that kind of a world, and we have, to, we have to understand it. A godly child, like we see here in Samuel, a godly child will be an outcast in his generation. A godly child may, may even be an outcast in the church of Jesus Christ if he tries to live for the Lord. And a Christian home is an anachronism. A Christian home that honored God and read the Bible and went to church together and prayed together and so forth, we'll read about those in books. And that's probably about all. And you want to know the proof for why what I've just said is the truth? Because these words of warning that I've just given already seem negative and defeatist to people who hear them. We hardly can stomach the warning, much less the real battle. And the warnings are there and always have been. So we need to learn everywhere we can from the Word of God about our generation and about how to handle. And when we have a passage that talks to us about a young person like Samuel and some, some negatives, some positives about an older generation like Eli, negatives and positives, and, and that worldly middle generation of Hophni and Phinehas, mostly negative, we need to learn from that. And... Uh, We'll try to do that this morning. Now, this is my last message about Samuel. Uh, we're going to end here at number 10. It's not that this is all that is said about Samuel in the Bible, of course, because his life will go on. And I'd like to talk about Ichabod and Ebenezer and those passages. But mostly from this point on, the story is about the history of Israel and about the kings of Israel from Saul and David and, and on. And Samuel appears into the story now and then. So our study of his life will end at this point. So in your bulletin, three thoughts, because uh, I, I want us to notice three things, two of them about Samuel, one of them about Eli. And the first thing is in verse 15, I call it the new prophet, this little boy, this 12-year-old uh, boy that is uh, residing in the temple at this time. Samuel lay until the morning, and then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and he feared to show uh, Eli what, he, what the Lord had told him. And so we see this new prophet. His childhood is gone, as I said. Responsibility now lays heavily on a 12-year-old, the hope of Israel is on the shoulders of this 12-year-old boy. I think that we have seen his conversion experience in chapter 3, as close to it as we'll ever see, and that is that uh, he did not yet know the Lord, verse 7 says, but after uh, this uh, passage, now the revelation of God and the word of God is on his lips, and he becomes the, the man of God. I want to give you three characteristics that we see plainly in verse 15, uh, about this new prophet, if you will. And, and these, these characteristics we need. We need in our children. We need in our grandchildren. We need these things in our young people. We see them in Samuel. We ought to learn from Samuel. Number one, I call it contemplation. The first thing is contemplation. He lay until the morning. Can't you see this beautiful scene? He's lying there, can't sleep, much after what the Lord has, has uh, talked to him about, and he lies there till morning. Now, do you do that? <laughs> 
I read that and say, I, I can identify with that, <laughs> you know, uh, because I'm a light sleeper. I'm a clock watcher at night anyway, and I, I haven't used an alarm, I don't, I don't know, in how long. So, so I'll wake up, and I'll lie there in bed for 10, 15 minutes thinking about the day and kind of outlining things and what I'm going to do next and this and that, uh, and then I'll get up. But I can see Samuel lying here, uh, no, you know, none of us have experienced what he experienced that night. God has talked to him, audibly talked to him. And here he is, just a boy. I mean, here's the priest over here, and here is it, are his sons over there. Who am I? And he's thinking about this and thinking about what he has to say. You know, if I can make this application, I, I think children need time to be still and know that I am God. And that's one of the challenges that we have in our generation is they don't have time to be still and to know. Their hands are always full and going like this. Their eyes are always watching. They're always, th they have things to do all the time. There's no contemplation. And, you know, it doesn't do us a lot of good to think about the good old days, but let me tell you, there was a time when David uh, was a shepherd boy out on the hillside looking at the stars at night and said, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. There are times when the, the men of God, in order to be trained, had to lie there and be still and think about things and know about these things. Did you have time when you were a, a child to go out in a field somewhere and lie down on the grass and watch the clouds go by in the sky? I don't know if kids had the time to do that anymore is what I'm saying. They need the time is all I'm saying. They need contemplation. And I think Samuel was used to it. I think Samuel could do it, and he did. Secondly, in verse 15, I will call this humiliation. Because it says, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. Now, suppose Samuel had said, God spoke to me, and I'm going to be the new prophet. Everybody get up around here. And I'm the prophet, so you do this and you do that. No. Twelve-year-old boy, what's he done since he's been three years old? Get up and open the doors of the house. Trim the lamps. Wake up, Eli. You know, so that's what he did. That's the first thing he did. Don't you love Psalm 8410? Let me read it to you again. For a day in thy courts is better than a thousand. I had rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. And he saw the tents of wickedness all around him. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. O oh, Lord of hosts, blessed is the man that trusteth in thee. I'd rather do this, Samuel says. I'm going to get up and do the thing that I've always done. Think of this, folks. Think of it this way, that when God has spoken to us and we don't know what to do next, do what we've always done. When we think God is maybe leading us, we think God is laying something on our hearts and we don't quite know what that is, and we see that in our young people. It's time in their life to, to ask, what does God want me to do? What should I be in life? Well, one good rule is get up and open the doors of the, Lord, <laughs> of the Lord's house again. Do what you've always done. Be faithful. Be in God's house. Be a, be a good uh, Christian. Walk with the Lord, and then the Lord will appear to you. 
And so that's important. And um, thirdly, in, in verse 15, uh, letter C, I have to call this, of course, intrepidation. <laughs> because he said he feared to show Eli the vision. Intrepidation now. Fearing to show. You know, Matthew Henry made this statement, no good man takes pleasure in evil tidings. Nobody wants to bring somebody else bad news. Nobody else wants to come and confront and, and do those kinds of things that sometimes are necessary to do. But Samuel, at 12 years old, bless his heart, to the high priest who's 90 years old, this is tough. And not only that, he loved the old man. He loved him, and the, and the old man loved him, too. Called him, Samuel, my son, come here. That's going to be hard to do, but he's going to do it because this is the word of the Lord, and he has to do it. So contemplation, humiliation, and trepidation are things that I hope we can build into the next generation and build into uh, the, the generation that's going to have to serve God. You know, that day was different than ours, as I've said, uh, in one way, even a boy could be still and know that he is God. Life was slower. Life isn't better because it's faster. It's just that we get things quicker and do things quicker than we used to, but life was slower then. But life before God was what was important, and they knew it. Life was more introspective, I think, where you had time to look at yourself and ask, where, I, where am I before God? Life was more honoring, and we see him honoring his elders and honoring this old man, and life was God-fearing. And let's try to create that for our kids. So here's the new prophet, verse 15. Secondly, uh, we get a glimpse of the old prophet, and rightfully so, some good things and bad things uh, about it, as, as all of us who have lived very long know. There's lots of good and lots of bad uh, mistakes and pluses. There's uh, all of this going on in our lives. So in verses 16 to 18, now, I've already, I've already made the point that I think Eli was basically a good man. I, I think he was a man that loved the Lord. I think he was a man, though, that made his mistakes and paid dearly for those mistakes. He was a man that let his kids run him. Uh, I don't, we don't know anything about his wife in those days and whether she was a help or not, but I think he was just a good man with a lot of failures, and unfortunately, one of the big failures in his life was in his kids, because in those days, the children had to take over the high priesthood of the father. And you had to build these things into them if they're going to be leaders in Israel. And that was his failure. And it was a big failure, no doubt. But I also think that this passage shows a lot of wisdom. He's coming to the end of his days. He's going to be reprimanded by God, and he's going to take it. I, I think in these things we see uh, wisdom. I, I, think of, I think of Abraham on Mount Moriah uh, with Isaac now that he had waited all of those years for, and I, I see the wisdom of Abraham in those days following God. Or how about Moses on Mount Pisgah as he looks over into the promised land and God says, you can't go there because of your mistake, but look at this land. Moses. Isn't it a great land? I, I think of Elijah on Mount Horeb who had run all the way south and then God, uh, he heard that still small voice of God that calmed him down. Or, or 
Paul in the, in the prison at Rome or John on the Isle of Patmos. And th these are men at the end of their lives who have served God, and they had wisdom for us in those days. Even if they had made great mistakes in their lives, if you could stop them and say, what would you do this time, Moses? Would you speak to that rock or hit it? What would you do, John, if you could, had to do it all over again? Be a great thing. Well, here's, here's Eli, and he knows he's at that point. So verses 16, 17, and 18, let me say three things. Number one, verse 16. He had an insight of events, as old men do. Then Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he answered, that is Samuel answered, here am I. He had an insight into events. After all, in chapter 2, verse 27, we had an unnamed man of God who had come to Eli and, and said, here's God's judgment upon your house. He knew, it, he knew the judgment was coming. He already knew God uh, ha had taken account of him. So he knew that. And now he realizes that there's a new man of God, and it's not him, and it's not Hophni nor Phinehas. It's this little boy, Samuel. He knows it by now, doesn't he? He reflects back on the events of the last few hours, and he realizes what's going on. So not only could Samuel not sleep, Eli couldn't sleep. He was waiting for this, and he knew it had to happen. And I think it's kind of fun in the story that now Eli gets called one more, or I mean Samuel gets called one more time. <laughs> He hears his name one more time, but this time it's not God, but it's the old man, and even Samuel realizes, okay, it's time to go do what I have to do. And Eli is saying, I need to hear what I need to hear. Let's have it. And so there's an insight that people have at this age that older people have, even when it's judgment upon their own heads. And if we are wise, even in our younger years, to ask them about these things, we would get wisdom from them. Even those who have made great mistakes could tell us how to avoid those mistakes. Secondly, in verse 17, I think that there is an inevitability of correction. It's inevitable. He's going to be corrected. He knows it. He knows judgment is at the door. So he says... Uh, to him, verse 17, what is the thing that the Lord has said unto thee? He knew it was the Lord. He, he knew the Lord had talked to him. I pray thee, hide it not from me. And as a matter of fact, God uh, do so to thee, and more also, more judgment upon you, if thou hide anything from me of all things that he has said. I want to know it all. I like that. I like that quality sometimes of old people who say, just give it to me straight. I don't care if it hurts or what. You know, how many times in hospitals have I seen, you know, the doctor come with bad news and an older man or older woman say, tell me, I want to know what's happening here. How much time do I have? What, what, what is this going on in my body? Whatever. Well, he, here Eli has that and, and uh, he knows it. So number one, under that thought in verse 17, a good heart seeks correction. A good heart wants correction. Eli wanted it. He want, even at his older age, even though the correction was inevitable, he wants it. And he, he, he wants to be corrected at this time in his life. That's a great quality. Secondly, forthrightness is the best in the midst of correction. 
give it to me straight, tell me exactly what it is so I can see it. And thirdly, I'd say, excuse me, late regret is at least honest regret. <laughs> I know what I've done. I know I've lost my kids. I know God's judgment is upon me. And he's saying, I've not been right before God. I admit that before God. And that is the best thing you can do. And here's an older man who's not going to go to his grave uh, without this remorse that properly belongs to him. And so he gives it. Good quality. I like that in him. And then verse 18 a third thing about the old prophet in verse 18, and that is I call a subjection then to chastisement. There, he's going to be chastised by God. I think he's a believer. I'm not saying he's an unbeliever or something like that. He, he's, an, he's a believer, but God's going to chastise me. As a matter of fact, take a, in a very harsh way. His sons are going to die. Israel is going to be plunged into captivity uh, under the Philistines, and the ark is going to be taken away, and then he's going to lose his life as well. So, but notice in verse 18, Samuel told him every wit and hid nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seemeth him good. Good man. Subjection to the chastisement. But two things I think we see here, by the way, in verse 18. And the first is something about Samuel. As a 12-year-old, he, he comes and says it plainly, doesn't he? And says what needs to be said. And that's good. I mean, not in a, not in a uh, proud way. Not in some kind of, I'm right and you're wrong, Eli. But God has told me, I must say what God has told me to say. He's not going to be a prophet of the Lord unless he knows this quality. He's not going to give prophecies unless he knows this. Whatever God has said, that's what I've got to say. And so he faces up to it. He comes in. Uh, he wishes he didn't have to say it. He loves this man. But this is what God has said. And so I'll say it. So we see that We see that glimpse of character into Samuel here that is good. And then, and then of Eli in this verse, we see that resignation to God's chastisement. And by the way, not Samuel's chastisement. Eli knows he's not being chastised by Samuel. That, that's not, that's not uh, who's correcting him. This is just the mouthpiece. Do you understand that when you receive correction, it's not from that person necessarily. It may be from God. And here Eli knew that very well. This is from God. And so I need to hear it, no matter who it comes from. Even a 12-year-old boy, even a 12-year-old who's going to replace me as the, as the prophet and priest in Israel. So we have, this, we have this old age transition going on here, as I've spoken about, and as happens in every generation, and all of us participate in, in one part of it or the other. Uh, again, the older writer Dean said, Hophni and Phinehas, self-willed, obstinate, overbearing, too long remained unchecked in their evil courses, and now had gained the upper hand over their weak father whose feeble remonstrances were utterly ineffectual. A powerful party was on their side. 
the idle, the dissolute, the pleasure-seeking, the free-thinking were their friends and comrades, and the old priest had not the courage to set himself against the public opinion. He masks in action with the garb of endurance and winks at the iniquity in which he is involved. I think that's a little harsh, but I'm, uh, he's describing the day that it happened. And we find ourselves, folks, in, in our generation, in this generation of churches sometimes, as older people saying, what happened? What do we do? What is this next generation? Where are they going to take us? And I think that part of it is true. And so it's sad, but uh, would you turn over to chapter 8 with me real fast and let me make this point. Even if you're Samuel, even if you're a young person at this time, as we all have been at one time or another, don't get too proud and too sure of yourself. You want to read some sad verses? Chapter 8. It came to pass when Samuel was old, he made his sons judge over Israel. Now the name of his firstborn was Joel, the name of the second Abiah. They were judges in Beersheba. Verse 3, and his sons walked not in his ways, but turned aside after lucre or money, took bribes, perverted judgment. All the ill elders of Israel gathered themselves together and came to Samuel and Ramah and said unto him, Behold, thou art old, and thy sons walk not in thy ways. So make us a king. And we go into that story where they, they want a king, and God gives them Saul, uh, and then later David. So don't be too proud, right? It's easy as a young person and young people, and we've probably all done it, and shake our fingers at the older generation and say, you failed, and we get there, and guess what? We have some of the same failures, don't we? Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived, warned us in that great book of Proverbs under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and was an utter failure in the same moral uh, charges that he gave us in the end of his life. So it happens, and we have to understand that. This is why, folks, I believe that the third generations seldom make it. At least it's been my observation that movements, sometimes churches, sometimes schools, and things start with one generation who has that, may I call it vision, but you know what I mean by that, has that call of God on their life, has that conviction of God's word. And then the second generation comes along, and they don't have the same conviction, but they follow on with what their father taught them, and they teach those things, but they don't do it with the same conviction that that first generation had. And then the third generation comes along, and all they hear is legalism. All they hear is words, but they don't, they've never seen the conviction of the grandparents. And so to them, the teaching of the second generation is just kind of legalism to them. And so that third generation changes the course of everything, and the movement's gone. Check it out in history. Check it out in the history of our churches, our schools, our movements, and see if I'm not right that about three generations, and that's about it. Unless God calls again. And God comes to a young Samuel and says, start it, Samuel. Do it this time. And he, you know what he will do later? He'll do this with David. 
And about three generations after Samuel, Saul will go by. Saul is a second generation. He's a nothing. And God has to come to a little shepherd boy out out in the pasture and say, start it again, David. I need you. That's what has to happen. But let's pray that that call comes to our young generation. And they need the call. They need the conviction. They need to do it. And not just rely on what they heard from their father about their grandfather whom they never knew. Okay. I get off the soapbox. Let me get back in the pulpit here a little bit. So let's go to the third part and and look at a blessing here in verses 19 to 21. And that is with the godly prophet. And of course, we're still we're talking again about Samuel here because uh, now he was a young prophet, but now we see a godly man, though a young man still. But I mean, we see all the qualities of it. Let me read it again. Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and did let none of his words fall to the ground. Don't you like that way of expressing it? And all Israel, from Dan even to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established to be a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again in Shiloh. And, God, and the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. These thoughts here from verse 19, the word of God was his business. You know, uh, he has to uh, take over now. He has to be the, the voice. He has to be the priest. He has to be the explainer of God's word. Let me remind you of a young man named Ezra that God called. You remember in Ezra, it began in, in uh, chapter 7, Ezra went up from Babylon, and he was a ready scribe in the law of Moses which the Lord had given uh, the God of Israel. So here was a ready scribe. And then in the book of Nehemiah, he's described again in chapter 8. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. He was above the people standing on a pulpit. And when he had opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. All the people answered, Amen, Amen, with the lifting up of their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And verse 8 says, so they read in the book of the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. That's what a preacher of the word does or hopes he does. That's what a prophet does. That's what a priest would do. And so the word of God was his business. And to say he, he did not let the words fall to the ground. You know what that means. Every word is important. Every word of God. I'm not going to just pick and choose the ones I want to follow and the ones I want to do. Every word I have to apply to my heart and my life. You know, things come and go. Even Peter, remember, said all flesh is as grass. But what? The word of the Lord abideth forever. And he had to learn this. So the word of God is his business. Verse 20, leadership was his lot. This is what he has to do. So from the north to the south, Dan to Beersheba, everyone in Israel knew now, and no doubt in these days ahead, Samuel, not Eli, not Hophni and Phinehas, not even someone from the right priestly lineage. He's established, but notice the change in word here, to be what? Not a priest, but a prophet. 
God will use him as a priest, but he'll bring his own line of priests back into uh, 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 service for him. But he's established to be a prophet. You know, a priest lives kind of a quiet life. A priest gets to hide off in the temple and in the, in the tabernacle and just kind of go about his daily business and light the candles and burn the sacrifices and say the prayers and do the things like that. That's kind of a quiet, nice life. Everybody would like the priestly life, but a prophet, you got to run and hide in caves and you got to confront kings and you have to confront people and you have to give the word of the Lord and it's a dangerous life. He's established not to be the priest, but to be a prophet against Eli. First of all, he has to say these things. Later, he'll have to say similar things to King Saul, who could take his life if he wanted to at any moment. And in a way, he has to admonish David at times and bring David along and and teach him uh, to do the same thing. Don't you imagine that David when God called him, might have had memory of this story of Samuel. Samuel was the one that anointed David. So the leadership was his lot, and lastly, revelation was his power. So verse 21 says, the Lord appeared again in Shiloh. You know, I, I like that because he didn't have to go to the mountain top to get his revelation. He didn't have to run off somewhere and have some uh, extraterrestrial experience. No, God came to him in Shiloh. If you go about doing what God wants you to do and be faithful in it, God will meet you there. And God met him in Shiloh, in this backward, out-of-the-way little town, pretty little town, but out of the way. Uh, that's where he met him. And he revealed himself, it says. This is what prophets do. They get revelation from God and they give it out. A lot of times that has nothing to do with prophecy in the sense of foretelling the future. It's just, thus saith the Lord to you. And he's giving his first message as a prophet that morning to Eli, and he'll give it to Saul, and he'll give it to the nation, and he'll do it often through his life. That is uh, his business. And when you have revelation from God, When God has spoken to you, think of this boy who gets up in the morning and doesn't want to say this to to his beloved old uh, grandpa figure, yet he says, this is God's word. I can't let it fall to the ground. I have to say it. That's a prophet. And so he does it. Let Let me remind us of something here in this 21st century. The word of God is our revelation. We don't need to wait for some voice to be speaking to us in the middle of the night. We don't need to run off to the mountain somewhere and wait for God to give us some vision. This is God's word. God has spoken in this book, and you have every authority as a child of God to say, thus saith the Lord. This is what God has said. And carry as much weight as the prophet of old when you say it. So when you speak, speak as the oracles of God, uh, uh, Paul says to Timothy. Speak as the oracles of God. This is, these are God's words, and when we speak it, uh, they are God's words. And so don't wait around. Just do it. Do what the Bible says. So here's the life of Samuel. We bring it through three chapters. Actually, the life of Elkanah and some of Hannah 
even of some of Eli as well. You know what the, you know what the message is, I think, from these three chapters of the book of 1 Samuel? The message can be summed up in one word, faithfulness. Elkanah, Hannah, Samuel, faithfulness. And what did Paul say about them? It's required in stewards that a man be found faithful. Just be faithful. Be what God says. Be what God wants you to do. Now, God is in control, and we know that. He's a sovereign God, but he uses faithful people, and he does his work through faithful people. And when his own people won't be faithful, everyone hurts from that. The church is hurt from that. Be faithful. You know, Jesus one time said to his disciples, the, the, the fields are white unto harvest, you know, but the laborers are few. So pray the Lord of the harvest that he'd send forth laborers into his harvest. We need those laborers. We need those faithful young people all the way through to older people. You remember John gave us the three generations in the book of 1 John. Fathers, you've known him from the beginning. Mothers, fathers, grandmothers, grandfathers. You've known him from the beginning. Be faithful to that. Don't change your course. And then he said, young people, young men, young women, you're strong. You've overcome the evil one. You know what the battle is all about. Be strong in the Lord. Put on the armor of God. And then he said to the little children, you may not know any more than that you're saved. <laughs> Salvation is of the Lord. Rejoice in it. Be happy in it. Grow up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Let's be faithful as Samuel was, as the people of God always have been. Stand now with me if you will. Let's bow our heads and let's go to the Lord in prayer and let's ask his help and blessing in this time as we reflect on this word and as we sing a song of invitation. Father, thank you for this life of Samuel. Thank you for the example that we have in him. Thank you, Father, for faithfulness that we see in your people, sometimes in young, sometimes in old. And even though, Father, we see the failures, sometimes in the young, sometimes in the old, you've given it all to us in your word. You've talked straight with us, too. And we want to know it. We want to hear it. Guard us from the things that would destroy us. Encourage us in the godliness that makes us more like you. So, Father, apply these things to our hearts here this morning and throughout these uh, ten messages that we have seen uh, in this great passage of Scripture. May you do your work in our heart today and right now that needs to be done. We'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. As we